Good afternoon. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the fifth program in our series this year to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of each month. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERUFM. Our conversation today is about youth change makers owning the future. We'll talk about how young people are engaging politically nationwide and here in Maine, what motivates them, what challenges do they face, what can the larger community do to support their efforts, and why is it important to the future of our democracy. This show was pre-recorded on May 17th. Send your comments to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host for the program today. Let me introduce our guests. Cole Cochran is first. Cole has worked on both electoral and legislative campaigns. I believe he's in the legislature today to address issues regarding climate change. He was campaign manager to Representative Maggie O'Neill of Saco. He has proposed bills that invest in climate action projects on public transportation, even lowering the voting age, which he persuaded the League of Women Voters to take a study on. He worked as a policy development coordinator and coalition builder. He served as a volunteer legislative team member for Maine Youth Justice, no, Maine Youth for Climate Justice, and as co-founder of Maine Youth Action. It's a lot to pack in to somebody who hasn't started college yet, right? Thank you, Cole. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Manor Hussein. Manor is a program manager at Circle, Circle being the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement, which is the leading nonpartisan independent research organization focused on youth civic engagement in the United States. She supports outreach and builds meaningful partnerships with election practitioner groups which I hope includes the League of Women Voters and other stakeholders. Manor is an active community organizer in the greater Washington, D.C. area and an experienced public policy advocate with a background in civic engagement, immigration, and civil rights. Very glad to have you here today, Manor. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited for the conversation. And Anna Siegel. Anna currently serves on the Committee for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability for the Town of Yarmouth and on the political and legislative teams for Sierra, the Sierra Club of Maine. She was also a youth representative to the Emergency Management Working Group of Maine Climate Council and is involved with climate advocacy since middle school. She is a founding member of Maine Youth for Climate Justice and with Cole, a co-founder of Maine Youth Action. So pleased to have you with us today, Anna. Thank you so much. So let's get started. Just drawing straws, we'll go to you first, Cole. What are we talking about when we talk about civic engagement for young people? It's not just voting, is it? No, I don't think so. Considering the uh, voting age is 18 years old, there's a lot of creative and innovative ways for youth to get involved. One major thing that I've discussed when I was advocating for lowering the voting age was um, the youth being foundations of electoral campaigns. As the campaign manager for Representative O'Neill, um, I would say probably 90, 95% of our volunteers were youth. And that is the case for many campaigns on a municipal, state, and federal level. Um, so I would just describe uh, youth uh, involvement as grassroots advocacy. And I think right now we're kind of seeping through the state legislature as well. 
I mean, there are some restrictions on how old people have to be to run for certain offices. So in addition to the fact that people under 18 can't vote, you know, people under 25 or some other, I'm not sure what the age barriers are, maybe, you know, Mon or, or Anna, but I mean, people can't run for office either until they get to be a certain age. Anna, do you know where those limits are offhand? I do not know them off the top of my head, but I know that they can be particularly restrictive, especially if you want to move forward to college out of state. I looked into both serving on my town council and state legislature and realized that because of the age limits and the length of time that you have to be in office, I would not be able to serve in either if I was to go to college out of state. What does the research show about this, Manor, in terms of, I mean, what what even ages are we talking about, like 16 to 24, 29, and um, how young people are able to get involved and where they're not able to get involved? Yeah, so in terms of circle, we define youth as ages 18 to 29, because that's generally the age range that's used in major election and data sources. Um, we know that, you know, the census defines youth as anyone who's 14 to 24. So there's a variety of a uh, ages, I guess, um, in that. But I, I do know that when we're thinking about the impact of, of youth in general, and we're really focused on making sure that youth are involved in civic activities um, even before they turn 18. Um, and we know it significantly impacts a young person's access, exposure, and lifelong commitment. So if they are able to participate even earlier than 18, if they are pre-registered at 16 or 17, it has lasting impacts. And if you're learning about civic education as a young young person in elementary or middle school, um, those have lasting impacts as well and really is able to shape the foundation, how Cole was saying, for future involvement. I think maybe I want to talk about voting first. The 16 and 17-year-olds that would like to vote but maybe can't, and then the 18 to 24-year-olds that have a reputation as not turning out as much as maybe they should. Um, but I know that there are many other aspects to civic engagement, and I want to turn to those later. But let's just start out talking about voting. Manor, why, why, why is it said so often that voting between 18 and 24 is low and why is that true if it is true? Yeah, so typically I would say that in terms of this age range that we're looking at, youth are a very transient population between the ages of 18 and 24, even before that. You know, they're applying for college, they're moving out of state. And if you're not applying for college, you're you're getting a job. There's so many different uh, factors that are impacting your ability to really be able to participate fully in your community. Um, and because of that, we know that that can have an impact on their voter turnout, on their registration. And so this this sort of uh, age range is particularly um, impacted by those those uh, life changes. Cole, are you familiar with the statistics for young people voting in Maine, which has been pretty good over the last few cycles? I don't have a specific number, but I do know that in Typically in Maine, in general, we do have one of the highest voting turnout rates in the country. And I think that follows similarly with uh, youth participation. If I'm not mistaken, the national, I, I don't know if someone said this already, but I believe the national turnout in 2022 was 37% amongst youth, which was pretty high considering past numbers. Just because we're on you for a second, Cole, talk about the 
interest in among 16 and 17 year olds in voting and in, especially in light of what Mono was saying about the transient life that many, many college students have and why certain stability in younger years would might make that a little better. So like what are the benefits of lowering the voting age to yeah. 16? Yeah. yeah, so I think that is right on point. I think that starting um, civic participation and voting before the age of 18 uh, provides a sense of stability. 18 years old, as you all know, that's when people are heading off to college, maybe it's secondary education, starting up their adulthood. And I think that is such a huge transition for folks that they don't have the time or capacity to provide a well-informed vote at the ballot at 18. So starting 16 and 17 years old, um, I think people have more um, free time to better understand how to research candidates, how to be informed on issues. And I believe most importantly, I think this is my last point on this, is um, civic education is occurring in high school. And that is when you know it the most. That's the first time you're learning it. You're learning it in depth. And I think teachers are capable of teaching students how to vote how to be civically uh, or how to participate in our um, electoral system. So I think those are all like important factors as to why um, you should lower the voting age to 16. I saw you nodding there, Anna, when Cole was talking about civic education. And I would like you to jump in and just talk a little bit about your own experience with young people and their interest in politics and getting involved and engaged. And if, in fact, the kind of civic education that you had. Absolutely. So the reason that 16, 17 year olds should vote is because establishing those civic ha uh, habits early creates good, consistent voters for the rest of their lives. And this has been proven in research and in other countries where they have lowered the voting age. But civic education also has to tie in there. We have to teach people what it means to be a citizen, why you even should vote in the first place, rather than just saying, okay, you can vote now, go ahead. Part of the reason that voting for youth is so low is that youth have been told for so long that it is our responsibility to fix the world. But we don't have the tools necessarily at our disposal, the information on how to do so. And that's where civic engagement comes in. And having civic engagement with that connects people to local issues that is comprehensive and sustained throughout elementary, middle, and high school is the key here. Pick up on that, Manor. So what motivates young people to get into politics and what are the demotivators? Well, you know, as Anna was saying, young people are are, are not a monolith. Um, they're going to have diverse interests. They're going to have diverse issues, priorities. Um, and they really want to connect back to the local. Um, we know that in the last 2022 midterm, the economy, inflation, and abortion were the top two issues that folks, especially young people, pointed to as a reason uh, for you know prioritizing voting. We also know that other issues like climate change and gun policy are also very salient. And that's, you know, in large part, really why we need to talk to youth to find out what they care about and what are the pathways they need to, to participate fully. Um, and I would also say there's a role for all institutions, whether it's K through 12 civic education, campaigns, election officials, um, that, that really need to do the work uh, to grow young people into lifelong civic actors. I was just reading something that talked about the way um, public policy underrepresents youth issues or the issues that young people care about, whether it's family and child care, climate change, gun policy, whatever it is. 
you know, when you don't have enough young people in office and when you don't have enough young people voting, our public policy doesn't reflect the issues that matter. Can you comment on that, Cole? What's your experience in that way? Just to clarify, it's my experience and like how youth are involved in public policy. Is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I think that actually in Maine, it's very unique. I know that youth engagement and advocacy is very prevalent um, in the rest of the United States. However, I feel like that public policy Maine has been directly involved. There's been some amazing youth legislators, especially Representative Carlo, Representative O'Neill, and I would say Representative Riley. Like there's many legislators currently serving that want youth to be writing policies. They want their voices heard on issues because they understand that it's very difficult to have our voice heard when we don't have the right to vote at like 16 and 17 years old. So this is our way of getting involved. And I think it's very strong. Um, I think especially around climate action. And I would not say like gun control in Maine. I'm not as experienced in that area. However, I do know that climate change and environmental policies, there's a very uh, large youth presence. And I've read that in some states, youth voter suppression is on the rise. Have you read that? And why do you think that's happening? I have read that. And I believe that youth voter suppression is on the rise. And also there's this pushback against the youth voting because there is a narrative that we cannot make good decisions. It is the stereotype of the reckless teenager. And that is also the reason why uh, there's often pushback against 16 and 17 year olds voting. But that is not exactly an accurate narrative when you look at the science around how young people can make valid decisions. For example, a 2017 essay published in the University of Princeton Law Review observed that 18 is the current voting age largely because of a historical accident, because of precedent. 16 actually makes more sense from both legal and psychological perspectives. So what I'm getting at there and what this essay is getting at is that there are two kinds of decision-making processes in adolescent brains. So one is hot cognition, which is impulsive and subject to peer pressure. Hot, Hot cognition is that stereotype of the reckless teenager. But cold cognition is long term decision making, such as executive functioning, time management and planning. Cold cognition is what is used for voting and cold cognition is fully developed in the brain by 16, which is why the narrative around you know, youth brains aren't fully developed, doesn't make sense when we, when you look at it scientifically and why that that tool for youth voter suppression doesn't hold up to the facts. Manar, do you think the interest among young voters in, let's say, climate policy is possibly one of the reasons why conservative forces might be pushing back on youth voting, on college student voting? Um, you know, is it a policy angle or is it really that they're not ready to vote? Well, we definitely see efforts to pass restrictions. And we think that both parties definitely have a lot of work to do to reach youth and give them the opportunities to to engage. And in the long term, whether it's suppressing because of certain issue areas or other factors, in the long term, it's still a losing strategy, Um, making it harder for young people who are, you know, saying that they're inclined to vote but not giving the opportunities, you're sending the message that young people aren't fully welcome in the democracy. And that's going to have ripple effects for years, year, decades to come. Mm-hmm. Let's take a, a short station break here. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is Young Changemakers Owning the Future. Our guests this afternoon are Manar Hussein, 
Program Manager at Circle and a SEAL founding member of Maine Youth Climate Justice and co-founder of Maine Youth Action and Cole Cochran, co-founder with Anna of Maine Youth Action. This program was pre-recorded on May 17th. No listener calls are being taken. It's not just voting, though. Let's talk a little bit about um, about the other ways that young people can get involved, serving on boards and committees, running campaigns, lobbying, legislation, speaking out, pro- protesting, running for office. Cole, talk about your experience, your cohort, and the people that you know that are doing some of these other things, yeah, including I, yourself. I think, yes. <laughs> a little self-promotion, right? Yeah. Um, so I think that uh, the youth of Maine have certainly been involved in government and in politics. So I think I would like to first point to a major decision-making body, the Maine Climate Council. So the Maine Climate Council is responsible for the Maine Won't Wait Climate Strategy, which is updated every four years and provided a, a progress check every two years. Within that council, there is a designated youth member, and that has um, uplifted many voices. The first member was Anya Wright, who's actually, if I'm not mistaken, Anna, correct me if I'm wrong, was a founding member of Maine Youth for Climate Justice. And then also Amara Feji, who's very involved in uh, youth advocacy. In fact, we just saw her at Youth Day of Action. Besides uh, the Maine Climate Council, which is has a designated youth member and designated youth members on their working groups, I, for one, has been a part of their transportation working group. We've had other involvements such as lobbying. So Maine Youth Action, in fact, was co-founded for the purpose of direct action and political activity. Uh, we have the ability to directly lobby, write legislation, and have volunteers involved in that process. In that case, This year, we've worked on proposing the Pine Tree Amendment, which is a constitutional right to a healthy environment, statewide constitution. Uh, We've proposed bills ranging from public transportation funding, expansion of passenger rail services, and also contributed to offshore wind, conservation, and renewable energy. So there are many areas of interest that manufacturing has been involved in. Um, And we've been able to get uh, several volunteers and our staff to involved in these activities, but not to mention there are several advocacy groups that are doing similar things. And I think that's what's really uh, uplifting the youth voices, this channeling of uh, volunteer to advocacy group to legislature. And I think it's that channel that's really um, modernizing uh, how we uh, do public policy. I mean, mean, that's pretty impressive. Anna, you served uh, for the town of Yarmouth. Talk a little bit about your experience and those of people that you know who are pursuing other channels for civic engagement than just voting. Absolutely. So this goes all the way back to 2019, where I was working along with other members of Maine for Climate Justice to pass climate emergency declarations in different municipalities. Climate emergency declarations saying, you know, you must reduce your carbon emissions, create a climate action plan and work as a municipality. This was before I got involved with state policies, and so I was doing those policies on a municipal level. And at one point, I realized, maybe I should do this in my own town, because we've been focusing on Portland and Saco and South Portland and kind of forgot about my town of Yarmouth. And so I realized that it might, instead of pushing from the outside, it can be a long, slow process. Uh, It might be better to do it um, from the inside. So I joined our Committee for Energy Efficiency and Sustainability and then working with the Yarmouth High School students, we passed the Yarmouth Climate Emergency Declaration. And that declaration created a new body, the Yarmouth Climate Action Task Force, which I now also serve on. 
And it was been a really exciting process because I really became more involved in my own community. A lot of my work is centered around Portland and Maine statewide. I go to school in Portland, but doing this work right in my own town really connected me to other Yarmouth high schoolers. I found new friends and really made connections with the, the adults on these two operating bodies and working with them to develop projects. So it's been really exciting. And it's also been very cool to see other youth getting engaged. How has the intergenerational work been for you two? Have you found the adults in these teams very supportive, not supportive enough? I don't know. Go ahead. I, I do want to point out that Anna actually helped lead the divestment campaign. And I think it'd be great if Anna could talk about that and that intergenerational coalition, because I think that was really impressive. I contributed to it, but it was Anna's idea with Maggie O'Neill, and I think it would be great if she could talk more about it. Yeah, good. Thanks, Cole. Another time skip, Earth Day 2020. Uh, This is when (laughs) things went virtual. We were planning a huge march in downtown Portland, and then we could no longer do that uh, because of the pandemic. And so for the first time, I did not know what to do with activism. And I that's when I first started wading into policy because that could be done remotely. And I, it was very, very scary at first, but with the help of folks like Cole and Representative O'Neill, who gave me that civic education that maybe I missed out a little bit on in middle school and high school, they showed me how the legislature works. And I began seeing how you know different policies could make these changes. And so there was an intergenerational coalition of adults with Sierra Club Maine, adults uh, in nationwide uh, climate finance networks, Representative O'Neill, and then other youth for me for climate justice, such as Cole and Cassie Kane, who all worked together to craft this bill and pass it called LD99, which was an act to divest the state from its fossil fuel assets. This intergenerational coalition is actually still going on because the important thing to remember about policies, it's not just about the passage, it's about the implementation. So this coalition is still convening and we're now trying to make sure that the state follows through with this and divests as uh, was said in law. So that is a really interesting success story that also tells to the ongoing fight that can happen in these climate spaces. But the intergenerational coalition was key to the success because we needed the energy and passion of youth. We needed the youth networks and we needed adult knowledge and adult skill sets and history with climate finance and the more technical details of that world. Manor, put this, I mean, this is this is also exciting to hear about um, it from Maine's perspective. Put this in context with what you see happening around the country. And I'm thinking, you know, particularly we just saw Tennessee youth action after that school sh- shooting. And, you know, maybe the Tennessee legislature was not so supportive. So what are you seeing around the country? Yeah, well, you know, when major national issues arise or events happen, that is such a galvanizing point for youth. Um, the Dobbs decision last, uh, you know, fall really motivated young voters to turn out to the polls. And that I was recently- on reproductive choice, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, and in recent years, we've been seeing huge increases in youth engaging in activities like attending marches, demonstrations, and other forms of civic participation. And other than, you know, elections and voting. Um, and I think those are the most key points in all of this is that, you know, to have youth participate in, you know, volunteering for campaigns or registering their peers or, 
you know, starting up a community garden uh, club or something. Those are the ways that we're really getting to see youth connect to their local issues um, and to be able to uh, translate that to the polls later. And I'll stay with you for a second, Monar. I mean, in addition to laws that prevent 16 and 17 year olds from voting or that prevent people under 25 from actually running for office, what are the other maybe less formal impediments that young people face in their interest in, you know, fulfilling their interest in politics? Well, we know that uh, specifically college students uh, using student IDs as an acceptable form of voter ID, those types of laws are sort of uh, um, removing those those uh, abilities for young people to participate, especially college going youth. Um, there's a lots of other policies like not even having automatic voter registration that is significantly tied to the ability for not just young people, but all people to participate. Um, same day voter registration policies are always facilitative uh, to be able to to get youth that, you know, may have forgotten to register prior. Um, and so we're seeing that facilitative policies are really helpful in turning out youth voters, but then, you know, older voters as well. In Maine, we've done a little bit of a look at legislative pay, which in Maine is quite low, and uh, the effect that has on people who are still in their prime earning years is money, an object, would you say, Cole? Yeah, I, uh, I actually I think there's a bill right now that would increase the legislator's salary from its mere eleven thousand dollars to twenty five thousand. Um, which I definitely consider a significant barrier. I think what you get is people that are really committed, maybe workplaces that allow you to take that time off for the legislature, which don't be mistaken by the number. It is a full-time job, um, regardless of what they tell you. It, it is a full-time job when they are in session. So you have those folks where they have the privilege of having time off from work. Um, you have the folks that are retired um, that don't need a job, or you have the broke college students, <laughs> which are <laughs> the folks that are willing to put in an additional 40 hours a week on top of 50 hours a week of school. So you can see how unsustainable it is to have such a low salary. And I, I do feel strongly that it does create significant barriers, not only for our youth, but also for folks that um, have lower incomes. I, I don't understand like how someone that would make a income of $35,000 a year could justify saying, all right, I'm going to give up this job for four to six months out of the year to work a job that only pays $11,000. And again, it's not just about the pay when it comes to being a legislator, but people do need to make a living and in order to actually sustain those jobs. So you'll find a lot of people that have the privilege and have the uh, money and resources to be in office. I want to give you a chance to weigh on in this too, Anna, about the obstacles. You know, what are the motivational, the legal, the financial, economic, um, life situation? What are the barriers that young people face um, to fully engaging as much as their passion might call them to? I think that there's, in my experience, there is definitely a financial barrier when it comes to the civics being privileged knowledge. Oh. So what I've seen is that private schools have the flexibility and budget to deviate from the big five, the sciences, math, English, language, and history, 
to invest more time and money into civics. Public schools may not have this flexibility because of state institute curriculum, or they may not have the funding from the state to invest in physics and deviate from these core subject areas. And also there's such an emphasis on public schools to perform. We need to have the kids with the highest SAT scores and the best colleges, which isn't necessarily, those metrics will not come out of civics classes. And so it's not necessarily incentivized for some schools to do this which leads to some of that kind of privileged education. I wanted to add something to that. Um, I also want to talk about how, you know, our research points to the fact that we have not sufficiently created, invested in, or sustained opportunities for a diversity of people to be able to have the civic knowledge. Um, In our Circle Growing Voters report, we found that one in six youth are not learning about elections or voting anywhere. And they're more likely to be Black youth to live in rural areas um, and in general have a parent, a parent or both parents uh, that has an actual college degree. And on top of that, we know that, you know, 40 percent of young people are not in college um, and they tend to vote at even lower rates. So we really need to work on inviting in and finding pathways for opportunity youth who do not have those traditional pathways as well. You're opening up a big topic area that I want to cover after a short station break, which is civicus education. How good is it? Who gets it? What are the class barriers that keep us from being a fully inclusive in that in that way? But let me do the station break first. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon are Anna Siegel, founding member of Maine Youth Climate Justice and co-founder of Maine Youth Action. Cole Cochran, co-founder with Anna of Maine Youth Action, and Manor Hussein, program manager at Circle. Our topic today is Young Change Makers Owning the Future. This show was pre-recorded. Send your comments or questions to news at weru.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. So Anna sort of opened the book on uh, the next big topic for this afternoon, which is civics education. And I think she kind of jumped right to the punchline, which is civics education is a privilege that is not uniformly afford it to everybody in every school. Um, Cole, do you, I, I'd like to ask you to comment what you think is the role of civic education in growing um, democracy participants and maybe even reflect on your own experience because obviously whatever happened to you kind of worked. So, Well, I got to say first in terms of my advocacy experience, it was certainly a unique path. And I think it's a bit unfortunate that most of my civic education actually came outside the classroom. I think it's, I think it's very welcoming to have legislators and have advocates open to someone as young as I am working alongside them on legislative priorities and learning about our process and depth. However, I just felt strongly that that's something I should have learned in the classroom beforehand. Um, I think that there is certainly a lack of civic education in our Um, public systems. I feel like that they do cover the basics in some cases, but again, I think Manor, I think she mentioned one in six uh, young kids do not have access or have not learned anything about civic education. That is really significant in a country's uh, turnout rate is extremely low, you know, especially amongst uh, younger folks. I think 
2022 elections were certainly uh, exceptional. I feel like, however, in the past, turnout rates have been extremely low, closer to, I think, to 20%, maybe in the teens. Um, so I feel like that does come from the lack of civic education and almost a, a aversion to it because we feel like it's a, a supposed electioneering in our schools, which is just not the case. What do you think about that, Anna? That and how how much of that sort of cynicism that like it's electioneering in schools, therefore you can't learn about politics in school? Just comment on that a little bit. It's kind of troubling. I agree with that analysis, especially because so I was commenting about how public schools may not have the funding or flexibility in the curriculum to do civics classes, whereas private schools may. But I think that there is a hesitation from both public and private schools, a fear from them of straying into political territory, of being divisive, because that is a threat to both their taxpayer money and losing state funding, because there's a lot of harsh restrictions on what schools are allowed to do, understandably, because, you know, just as you want to separate certain facets of government from others, you don't want to have um, partisanship in schools. But I think that that fear can extend so far as to limit some aspects of civic education because they worry that they're getting into divisive territory, uh, which is an argument that I think is made a little bit too often um, as an excuse to not do some necessary political education. Manor, what what's the history of this sort of big picture and what's the landscape around the country? I mean, it seems like in a democracy, teaching people how democracy works ought to be fundamental to sustaining democracy over the generations. But I mean, has this been a trend in U.S. public education or what? And what are you seeing around the country? Well, we know that there's significant uh efforts to limit civic education around the country in, in public schools. K through 12 schools are foundational institutions that reach almost all youth. Um, and for millions of young people, that's the only place they're learning about elections. Um, and it, that's especially true for teens of color and youth from underserved communities. Um, and we found in our research that time and time again, young people who are more supported and prepared to engage in democracy found that in, in supportive school cultures. And that really facilitated their participation and gave them opportunities to develop and use their voice. Um, in terms of what we're seeing, um, you know, there's huge differences between urban and rural access to civic education. Uh, particularly, we found that 60% of rural youth perceive that they live in a place that lacks accessible civic institutions and opportunities to engage. And the differences between urban and rural use are very no notable. Um, teens living in urban areas were 20 percentage points more likely to have taken a course in U.S. government and institutions. And so we're going to see significant, uh, you know, divides and uh, accessibility between between these two geographic regions. And it's going to have lasting impacts. I mean, we're seeing sort of a red state, blue state fight over what the actual content of the curriculum is, too. Are you reading anything about that, Cole? Not any um, articles in particular. However, I am aware that it is a debate. I think um, a lot of critical thinking skills and weighing the pros and cons of issues are absent within red states. I feel like they advocate for the basics and the rudimentary curriculum. And I felt that there is more of a push in blue states 
um, to have a more intuitive curriculum where one is engaged, one is uh, thinking critically about issues. I know that in Maine, it's it's getting better. I believe that a lot of schools are adapting to uh, presenting contemporary issues and how to be involved. Um, and that's something I've encouraged in my school in particular. Um, but it, it's also kind of difficult because I, again, this isn't like um, re research supported claims. Um, so I would have to look into it further. Yeah. I mean, we hear too about whether students are getting enough information about how to use news channels online. And um, I wonder yes. if, yeah. That, that That is a fundamental one. That was actually something we learned back in sophomore year of high school is um, media bias, where they stand. We actually had a, a pyramid graphic where it showed you how far left or how far right news articles are. I think that was super helpful. But again, like that's something that is really simple to show, simple to explain. Um, so I think that that is a great start, but there certainly can be more uh, movement in the right direction. What was your experience in that, Anna? I think that media bias training and education is one of the stronger parts of civic education in schools because it links to a wider curriculum in schools around cybersecurity and just general uh caution around developing technology and it plays a lot into social studies classes talking about how you know ai influences things like formulations and global development so i think that is a stronger point in schools is here's how you access good information here's how you find trusted information because we need to know that for research papers we need to know that, know that for every class but it's the next steps that are lacking. So what do you do with that information? How do you apply that to real world outside of classroom situations, such as getting good, accurate information about how to vote or what the issues are or who's running for office? So applying that information outside the classroom, I think, is definitely the gap in the civic education in schools. Are schools allowed to teach current events anymore, Mono? I mean, like if you're in a yeah. debate club, you're probably... You're doing debate, but go ahead. I, I would, cool. Yeah, I would say so. I think that we do talk about um, issues in the classroom. And um, sometimes it's around, like, for example, I think the thing is, is that my school is a public slash private. It's a town academy. It's supported by the municipal government, but it's privately operated. Um, so I think I do get a privilege in the sense of having uh, more detailed classes. So we have one that's America's response to a changing world. And we talk about contemporary issues such as like climate action, gun control, things that face the nation during that year. Um, I just don't feel that many schools have that opportunity. Um, and I feel like when you get into other states that are more conservative, I feel like teachers are more reluctant to say that. Um, backlash. Or forbidden, right? Or oh, forbidden, right. yes. Yeah. And in some cases forbidden. And I think that's honestly a shame to have that information restricted. I do understand like the point of objectivity, um, having these schools um, present both sides equally and without a bias. Um, however, I feel like restricting it entirely in, in light of these people uh, making their own decisions, right, <laughs> is really concerning to see. Manor, how much is there a feeling among young people that, you know, are you finding in your research that, you know, our vote doesn't matter? Like, what's the point? That has definitely been a, a significant feeling. Um, and that is partly fostered by the lack of investment in youth. 
Um, and in particular, our, our research has shown that youth are feeling, you know, a lack of motivation, but they still feel a great hope in the democracy. And I think what that points to is that once we make a connection with youth on the issues that they care about, they will feel a sense of support to actually act. Do you notice that attitude among people that you know? What's the difference? My vote doesn't matter. My vote doesn't matter. I would say, honestly, I think it's very difficult because the state of Maine and local and state politics are, I would say, very proactive. I think youth have been really engaged. Um, So I don't know. I, I just... I think that, no, you don't see it. That's great. I'm yeah. I I mean I and I'm trying to see. I I don't know. I feel like federal politics is somewhat discouraging. Um, I think that's possibly like a contributor to it. But when I rack my brain through municipal and state politics from my experiences and from others, I feel like many people are, are energized. And when they get discouraged at the federal level, they go to the state. You know, and that's what I've seen. And. I feel like in Maine, it's very accessible um, for viewers that aren't in Maine. And for those that don't know, a legislator, such as a representative, um, represents, I think, like 6,000 people in a district, right? That is the size of a small town. (laughs) And Saco, I think 21,000 people. We have roughly two representatives and some that have chunks of Saco. That's really manageable for someone to reach out. So... I think we're really fortunate in that case. Do you want to comment on that, Anna? How much in the people that among people that you know do you see this attitude like my vote doesn't matter? Why should I bother? Both parties are Yeah, so Cole referring to how dispiriting federal campaigns can be, uh, it links back to a point I was making earlier about how it is local issues that drive people towards action, things that happen in their community close to home. That is why good civics education starts close to home. What does town office look like? Who's running for your school committee? And what's happening with your district? And who's your legislator? Most students don't know who the legislator is that represents them because they feel like they aren't being represented and that all issues are so big and out of scale and don't matter necessarily to them. But that's why a lot of kids are engaged with climate because climate impacts you no matter where you are on the planet, because it is the planet, which is why everyone feels like they have that sense of stakeholdership and that sense of stakeholdership of authority of this situation of it is my life and I have to do something about it and get involved is a huge motivator. So I really do see a sense of uh, what can we really do about it when it's addressing things that feel very distant. Mm -hmm. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our guests this afternoon have been Cole Cochran, co-founder of Maine Youth Action, Manor Hussein, program manager at Circle, and Anna Siegel, founding member of Maine Youth Climate Justice and also co-founder of Maine Youth Action. This program was pre-recorded on May 17th. No listener calls are being taken today. Um, but I want to sort of get to now what listeners can do and sort of call to action among the people that are hearing this program. Is there anything that old people can do to support young people getting involved in local government? How can local governments um, be more proactive in making a place for young people to get involved? Manor, what are best practices from your research? 
One of the most important things that we've talked about in the Circle Growing Voters report is that we need to create clear opportunities for civic engagement and action. We need to be able to reach diverse groups of young people and really be able to build pathways to that engagement. Like opportunities that are paid are so significant and can really change the way that youth from lower incomes and and backgrounds can participate. Um, We've seen that, uh, I'm not sure what the exact percentage is, but outreach from candidates and campaigns is abysmal when it comes to reaching youth. So having that sort of support and connection can really engage youth on issues that they care about. Um, Additionally, just like outreach from your personal networks and explicit encouragement and support can really foster a sense of belonging. And then in general, um, a sense of that your leadership matters and and, you know, additional mentoring always always helps as well. Anna, what's the ask you would make of the old people in our listenership, the adults in our listenership? I've done a lot of work uh, in on intergenerational collaboration and what it looks like and what best practices are uh, through a project called Intergen, which I was invited to uh, by Dr. John Hagen. It was six youth and six adults meeting for a year every month, discussing contentious issues and things that matter to us and coming to these broad conclusions about how youth and adults can best work together. And then uh, Dr. John Hagen and I published these conclusions in a uh, Stanford Social Innovation Review paper, which you can find online. And the reason I point that out is not necessarily for self-promotion, but because there's a lot more about youth and adult allyship than I can cover right now with your question. So that is a really great resource for folks thinking about that. But my biggest thing is I was talking about narrative earlier, how there's certain narratives which aren't helpful when it comes to lowering the voting age. Another narrative that isn't helpful for intergenerational collaboration is the idea of blame. You know, it is now the youth's responsibility to fix the world because adults messed it up or adults messed it up. So it's their responsibility to fix the world. This placing of blame, the shifting of responsibility doesn't help anyone and just lets us go in circles around climate and around other issues when we really should just be acting. So it's very important to remember that we need everyone in this movement. And that includes adults, that includes youth, that includes all sectors to come together and work together. Go ahead, Cole. What would you be asking adults to do to open the door? I honestly must say it's probably a combination of what Anna and Manor said. Um, I, I heard paid opportunities, and I think that is something that's really important. Uh, that's what manufacturing strives to do, and that's why we want to make sure people support that cause is because not only do we provide um, opportunities to be involved in the legislature, to be involved in government, but it's trying to do it through paid opportunities because that's how we're going to retain engagement and make sure that people from low income backgrounds and um, from disadvantages are able to still participate in this process. I know that paid opportunities has helped me uh, stay connected. I don't think I would be able to actually stay at this level of engagement for this long without uh, payment. So I find that part really important. Um, And I think that honestly, if people like if the elderly or if older people in our communities are able to direct opportunities to youth, they're very well capable and well-versed in these issues. And I think they just need a little more credit in that respect. So just give them a chance to get involved in politics, get involved in government, because they will certainly soar. So working internships, I mean, that's one very concrete program that 
yeah. you're all recommending. Um, do you feel any of you that there need to be changes in our public policy and in our institutions? I mean, we talked about lowering the voting age for one. Um, we've talked a little bit about civics education. I mean, do you think there need to be new laws or new institutions that would be more supportive? Monar, you go first. Yeah, well, I've been talking a lot about having facilitative laws that really open up opportunities and pathways for young people. We we need structural changes driven by various stakeholders to really be able to grow voters in every community. We need automatic voter registration. We know that youth will turn out to vote when when that barrier is is diminished. Um, we need same day voter registration. We need um, you know ability to use um, various forms of ID for people who are immigrants and black folks and queer folks and others. Um, and so there's many structural issues that are in place and barriers that have been limiting. And when we start to work towards uh, eliminating those barriers, we're going to see uh, a huge change. So these are some examples of the facilitative policies that you're talking about, which are just sort of getting out of the way and making it easier for people to come in. Anything mm -hmm. more proactive that you'd like to cite in terms of civics education, curriculum development, in-service learning, any of that stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So in, in general, we know that we need high quality civics practices and experiential learning in particular, where you're able to apply what you've learned in school to an issue that's happening in your community. Um, and there really is a lot of uh, great work happening at the Teaching for Democracy Alliance. It's a coalition um, that basically supporting educators to be able to teach uh, nonpartisan uh, election uh, material in schools. Um, and then there's also the, um, the Educating for American Democracy uh, Roadmap. It's essentially a, it's not a curriculum, it's not a guidance, but is a way for teachers and educators to be able to bring uh, civic, civics education into, uh, into their classrooms and to be able to meet these diverse needs and these diverse voices um, across the spectrum in terms of uh, belief systems as well. Anna, what policy or institutional changes would you like to see happen in this sphere? I would like to see more youth in decision-making uh, positions. So having their seat at the table and not necessarily as politicians because a lot of decision-makers in this world are on different sorts of boards, whether that's executive boards or school boards, town councils, committees, any sort of board of a nonprofit of a business is a place of power where youth should be heard as stakeholders. And that is another project that came from the Intergen project I was referencing is youth on boards Action on Climate, which is an organization that works to place youth onto different boards that are willing to open up space for those stakeholders. It's an amazing project that has been doing a lot of great work. And that is a change I would really like to see is more institutions having youth voice leading them. You know, having been, you know, like the only woman on an all-male board for a long time, I know how lonely that can be. Um, you know, how does that work for, for young people? Like, what if you're the only one? Do you have to get two or three to make it really work? Part of what Youth on Boards does is both not only training youth to know how to be most effective on a board, but also training the board. They also have certain standards and protocols on uh, 
steps that they will take the board through to make sure that the board understands how they should be receiving youth and how to not be tokenizing, which is really important work. But if there isn't an organization like youth on boards around, then I would agree that that can be a problem. I've definitely had experiences in the past. Definitely depends on the people, though. I have been on committees where I'm the only youth where that's been a problem. And I've been on groups where being the only youth doesn't mean anything and it hasn't hindered any progress. So it really depends on the people and how aware they are of the way that they are um, interacting with others around them. Diversity training here is everywhere, perhaps. Um, Cole, uh, open question to you. Public policy, institutional change, a chance to say something about lowering the voting age or whatever else you want to <laughs> promote. Go ahead. I think I've talked about lowering the voting age on this discussion a little bit. And I think I'd like to pivot um, more towards that youth membership within government in particular. I think what you see a lot of is that when there are uh, when there is a presence of designated youth members, um, they're typically a tokenizing role, right? It's just to say we have youth supporting this initiative. It's a rubber stamp. And I think that honestly, it does require more youth representation. It doesn't necessarily have to be um, changes in statute. Uh, I just really do believe that um, more youth representation, so it's actually a substantial part of our decision making, is really important. Um, and just kind of getting over the stigma that youth, since they're younger, don't know anything. Because I think I've seen a lot of youth representatives and their respective um, bodies really make uh, a huge difference and lead um, the the bulk of change uh, in the legislature and in government. Um, I, I've seen it firsthand um, with advocates like Anna, um, Anya, Amara. Um, they all advocated at young ages uh, for change. They were a part of policy proposals and they held it together. And I think that we need to respect that and push for their further representation within government. All right. Last question on this. Is anybody promoting lowering the voting age for um service in legislative office is anybody talking about that do you want me to go first sure if you know go ahead yeah i i think there's still a conversation going around um i think it's been on pause particularly in maine i can speak to um because we would like to see the results of the study from league of women voters um and kind of build up that coalition back in the 130th legislature we had a very broad coalition of youth activists and um voting uh voting rights advocacy groups come show their support at that public hearing i think it was ld 706 um so I think that could be definitely repeated. Um, I think the conversation's on pause until we can um, let's hear the results of that study. Anybody else want to weigh in on lowering the age for running for office? All right. Well, we're um, to the point where you get to make your closing pitch here. So I think I'll start with you, Monor. Um, take a couple minutes and sum it up from your perspective. So, um, you know, our research points to the fact that we haven't sufficiently created or invested in or made opportunities for, you know, diversity of youth. And overall, it's not a case of apathy uh, that youth aren't coming out to vote. It's really a case of access. And these inequities don't start at the polling place. They start, you know, far before that. Um, and we really need to work together to grow voters in, in all communities um, and really move the model from the traditional voter mobilization to sustainable year-round engagement and really start local. Anna, what would you like to say, summing up this whole topic? 
for our listeners? There are so many ways to get involved from voting, from activism, from running for office. I promise that there is an organization that is doing the work you are interested in, or if there isn't, there are organizations that have resources to help you do the work that you're interested in. So check out Meaneath Action, check out Meaneath for Climate Justice, check out Circle. Just search up what you're interested in and see what happens, because there will be folks who want to help you get involved. And also get involved in ways that you are passionate about and about things you are passionate about. Because when you connect passion with action, that creates long-term sustained interest in change rather than action coming from fear or from despair. So make sure that you're associating what you're doing with positive emotions that doesn't feel like work. It feels like fun and you want to keep going to make it the world a better place. And you don't need to fit a cookie cutter role in the movement. There's no applications, no interviews necessarily. The movement is not designed for certain people. You are designed for the movement. We need everyone. Very good. Cole, final word. You all have amazing closing pitches. I think what I have to add is do not lose hope in the cause you champion for. Um, As Anna said, there are many resources and many avenues you can take to make that cause a uh, reality. Um, I think that organizations like Manufaction, Manufaction for Climate Justice, they all serve a a purpose and that is to engage and get youth involved. They want youth to have their passionate causes represented. And it's, again, like you don't want to feel morphed into the movement. You like make the movement yours. And I've seen it from my perspective. I started um, in seventh grade with advocacy as a campaign volunteer. And within a couple of years, I changed it to being a campaign manager and it just skyrocketed from there. Um, And I think that that path can be replicated amongst other youth activists. It's just making sure that you find um, the resources and avenues that are very bountiful at this point. This was a very exciting conversation from me. So thank you all for participating today. Our guests were Cole Cochran, co-founder of Maine Youth Action, Manor Hussein, program manager at Circle, and Anna Siegel, founding member of Maine Youth Climate Justice. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. We're streaming at WERU.org. If you have a comment about this show, you can send it to news at WERU.org. Please put Democracy Forum in the subject line. The League website is LWVME.org for more information about this topic. Lots of reading and articles you can find there on this topic or to learn more about other shows in this series. You can subscribe to our podcast also at lwvme.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you here next month.